Welcome to the City of Refuge Church Podcast. We are so excited that you have joined us. We are a church that is called, connected, and commissioned. We want to call all people to repent and believe in our Savior's loving grace. We want to connect our neighborhood to the unity found in the greater family of Christ. We want to commission others to live as kingdom citizens before the world and heaven. And we hope that this podcast gives you a glimpse of what God is doing in us and in the Eau Claire community. Thank you so much for tuning in. Well, good morning, family. If I hadn't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Justin Gates, and I have the wonderful pleasure of serving here at City Refuge. And I'm so excited to be with you all this morning. I'm excited to worship with you all this morning. Um, you sound amazing. And it's been so refreshing to my own soul to hear you all singing loudly and faithfully this morning. If this is your first time here, again, as Jay said earlier, we are a young church plant here in Eau Claire that wants to live on mission to call all people to Jesus, to connect everyone to his greater family, and then live out or commission them out as kingdom citizens in this world, to be lighthouses of life that share God's light to the rest of this world. And if you want to know more about what that means, we'd love to bring you, or we'd love to have you at our Seeking Refuge lunch at my house later um, after the service today, so you want more information about that. Or just to even ask questions um, and try to stump me, feel free to do that. Um, you probably will, but that would be okay. I also want to start this morning by extending my sincere gratitude to everyone who makes Sunday morning possible. So everyone on the worship team, so Leah, Jess, um, Joseph, I'm sorry, I'm looking right at you, and I can't remember. <laughs> um, Anna, Mary, Carl, um, Ben, and so many others, we're so grateful for you all. Vivian and Luke, thank you for making coffee every morning and for welcoming everyone. Y'all keep the ship sailing with your coffee. Zion, Crystal, and Andrew, I know he's not here. Y'all have been so faithful in, with uh, the audio and the visual and everything like that. Ross, for doing that this morning. Um, April, for the ways that you filled in the gaps the past few months. And Jay will for preaching and leading us well as our pastor. I am so grateful for you all and for what you do for this whole family every Sunday morning. With that being said, we are continuing our series this morning called God's Unrelenting Grace as we journey through the book of Jonah and see how God um, continues to pursue this, this reluctant prophet even though he was running away from God's presence and running away from the calling that God has given him to preach against the city of Nineveh. In chapter 1, Jonah showed us that all things, or things aren't always what they appear to be. As Jonah fled from God's presence, and instead of being the good guy, we see Jonah be the anti-hero, that he was supposed to be the person that was being obedient to God, who was being faithful to God, but instead he ran away. Then in chapter 2, we see how Jonah's prayer to God revealed his true heart posture, his idea of wanting to be prideful and continuing to rely on himself rather than being obedient to God. But under the pressure and weight of everything that was happening, we saw his true self. And despite all the discomfort and trouble that Jonah found himself in, God's grace never stopped chasing him. And the same is true for us this morning. And as we dive into chapter 3, we'll begin to see how God's unrelenting grace continues to show up. But before we do that, will you pray with me that God's grace will pursue us this morning as we read and study his word and hear from him. So will you pray with me? Father, I just think about Paul's prayer of how he humbly came before you, the, the God from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. And God, I echo Paul's prayer this morning. I pray that for myself, and I pray that for everyone here this morning, 
that we will be like Paul and humbly come before you. And God, may you give us the grace that we need to understand the riches of your glory. Father, we ask that your grace will come here this morning so that we will be strengthened with power in our innermost being through your Holy Spirit. That as you strengthen us in our innermost beings, Lord, that Christ may dwell richly in our hearts through faith. Father, will you who this morning root us and ground us firmly in your love, that we may understand more and more the vastness of your love, how long and how wide and how high and how deep your love is. And God, may your love, which surpasses all knowledge, fill us with the fullness of you. So God, use this time for your glory. Do far beyond all that we ask or think in our time together this morning. And may you receive all the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, the title of today's sermon is Second Chances and Turnarounds. Second Chances and Turnarounds. I want to start off this morning by asking a question and for you all to think about that for a second. But think about a time in your life when, sh- when someone showed mercy to you. What was that like? Do you remember the circumstances? How exactly did that person show you mercy? And as you think about how that person showed you mercy, how did you respond to this mercy? When I think about these questions, my mind goes back to the time when I worked at REI for a short season. There I was able to work as a bike mechanic. I learned a lot about bikes and how to fix them and service them and put them together. And if you walk into our bike shop at REI, you'll notice as you step into it that there's this big rack on the ceiling. And it's about 10 to 12 feet high. And this rack is where we would store all the bikes that were either being serviced or the bikes that were being built or people wanted just to put in there for a little bit as we fixed them. And the way that we got these bikes into the air was a super long pole. It was about 8 to 10 feet tall. And we'd basically stick the bike onto the pole and then hoist it up in the air to stick it up on the rack. Now, for those of us who are smaller and haven't been gifted with height, it was a challenge to put up these bikes onto this rack. And this is important context for what I'm about to share with you in a second. But one evening after I, was finished, after I finished putting together a bike, a coworker and I were trying to lift up this bike onto the rack. But we soon lost control of this bike, and it came crashing to the ground. And upon impact, the front wheel was broken, and there was a large scratch that ran across the midnight purple color. Yes, I still remember that. But the midnight purple color of the bike frame. And as all this was happening, I immediately was thankful that this bike didn't fall on us because it weighed like 50 or 60 pounds. But then I also thought about what's going to happen to me next. Is my paycheck going to be docked because of this bike damage? Or worse, am I going to be fired because of the way that I dropped this bike? And after much hesitation, I went to tell my manager what happened and expected the worst. But much to my surprise, she was very understanding. And although she wasn't happy about me breaking this expensive bike, and remember this was during the pandemic, so bikes are hard to find, they're expensive, they're really difficult. Like once we had it, they were sold very quickly. So this was a loss to the company. But she showed me mercy by not firing me and not docking my pay. And instead, she was willing to work with me to explain to the customer that, hey, this accident happened. And she walked with me to make sure we could get the customer another bike so that they could ride off happy and live a life outside. Because of my manager's mercy, I felt I was given a second chance as a mechanic. 
I even changed the ways that I worked by or because of that incident. I became more mindful and obedient to our company's lifting policies to make sure that there's always someone around me. In fact, I took it to the extreme of if there's a tall, strong person around me, I'm going to make sure that they are the ones that always pick up the bike to lift it up onto the rack. But in many ways, the story of mercy reflects what takes place in the text that is before us today. It's in these 10 verses of Jonah chapter 3 that we see the main thrust of our passage begin to take shape. And it's in this main thrust that I propose that the author of Jonah wants us to know that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a God of great mercy. And it's from God's mercy that the sinner is able to have a second chance in life. Moreover, it's from God's mercy that even the most seemingly impossible situations can be turned around. And this thread of God's great mercy is first seen at the beginning of this chapter. In verses 1 and 2, we see the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And he tells Jonah to get up and go to the great city of Nineveh to preach the message that I tell you. Now the keen observer will know that these verses bear a strikingly similar appearance to what happens at the very beginning of Jonah in chapter 1. There God calls Jonah to get up and to go to the great city of Nineveh. Again, that same language. And he says, preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Now after God has delivered Jonah out of the belly of the fish in chapter 2, he reaffirms the original call that he placed on Jonah's life, which was to go to Nineveh and preach against it because it was full of evil. Now, in contrast to what Jonah did in chapter 1, Jonah obeys God. He doesn't run away, but presses into where God's calling him and starts his journey to Nineveh. And it's here we see that God is a God of second chances. Instead of letting Jonah drown into the depths of the sea by way of a fish, God has mercifully saved Jonah. Despite all of his disobedience and his desire to run away from the very presence of God, God decided to reinstate Jonah. As, in, as his chosen instrument to preach against Nineveh. But remember, God didn't have to do this. He could have had Jonah sent on another mission where maybe the stakes were lower or the goals were different. Or God could have just written Jonah off entirely and let him drown because of, dis, because of his disobedience. But God's grace was so relentless towards Jonah that even this wayward process, or prophet cannot stop God from using his, this one particular individual to go to a very particular people to carry out his perfect plan in a far greater city. Family, this should give us great hope. The way that God acted towards Jonah shows us God's true character. He is someone who restores and even uses those who are quick to be disobedient. And as we flee from God and run towards our own sins and vices and distractions, God's pursuit of us will bring us back to him. He does this because he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and his mercies are new every morning. God is so kind and so loving and so merciful that he leaves the 99 sheep to pursue the one that has fled away. And he does it to bring him back into his flock to restore him and allow that sheep to prosper in his green pastures. God is so loving and kind and so merciful that he's like the father of the prodigal son who welcomes his son back with open arms in a lavish party to reinstate him as a son even though the son squandered away all his riches to live a life that he wanted to live. 
And it's in both of these cases that God doesn't just bring back the wayward. He doesn't, bring back, doesn't just bring back the wayward sheep or the wayward son, but he gives them a second chance at life. And this doesn't mean that God's mercy and his relentless grace gives us the freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want. Because if doing so, that would cheapen God's grace and cheapen his mercy. Whereas his mercy and his grace give us the ability to hold fast to the one who cares more about our sanctification than we are. And remember, the sanctification is a process that makes us more like Christ and that we become more pure, more holy, more blameless. That's what sanctification is. And in doing so, as we become more and more like God, to let go of our sin and live for the righteousness that he's called us in as his adopted sons and daughters, we have a renewed life that's transformed through the blood of Christ. Now, this process of sanctification often comes with discipline as God corrects our disobedience. But remember that God's discipline is always done from a place of love, that it redeems the broken parts of our lives to not only make us better and make us more sanctified, but also shows his glory to the rest of the world. So family, where in your life do you need to stop running away in your disobedience to turn back to God? knowing that he's merciful, knowing that he gives second chances to those who turn to him. How can you embrace God's discipline, as crazy as that sounds, knowing that his discipline is that of like gold in a furnace, where the furnace burns away the impurities to make it more pure, more precious? That's what God's discipline does for us. It makes us more precious in his sight. We're continuing on in our passage. Jonah comes to the city of Nineveh, and the author tells us a second time that Nineveh is this great city, so great that it would take a three days walk to go across it, which is about 60 miles across. And then Jonah, it says that Jonah walks in one day into the city, about a third of the way, so what's that, 20-ish miles? And he preaches the world's shortest, the short, the world's shortest sermon, and he declares, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Now, there are several things that should strike us about this sermon. The first is that God is not mentioned at all. We aren't really told why Jonah's sermon excludes a seemingly important piece of information. We could argue, or one could argue, that maybe he's just following God's command quite literally. I mean, God does tell him to preach against Nineveh, and he doesn't mention anything about himself. Or maybe it wasn't that Jonah wasn't following this literal understanding of God's command, but he was more concerned about the, de- the destruction of this Assyrian city. After all, the Israelites and Assyrians weren't the, on the best of terms since Assyria held Israel in captivity for many years. Again, we aren't told why Jonah preached the way he did, but the second interpretation might be more plausible considering that the word for demolished in the Hebrew has two different meanings. Demolish could mean either being turned over on its head, which gives this idea of destruction, or it could mean a turning, th- or a turning that brings transformation. Knowing Jonah, as Jerry will preach on next week, Jonah probably wanted this destruction to come across Nineveh. But God, in his kindness and mercy, being the one who's sovereign over all things, uses these five measly words to bring about a radical transformation in Nineveh. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. And it says, Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. 
It's in these few verses that we reach the turning point of our story. After Jonah's sermon, the people of Nineveh believed in God. Literally, that means that they proved God to be firm, reliable, faithful. That God has done such a powerful work in the hearts of the Ninevites that everyone, from the least of them to the greatest of them, proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth. And in this culture, the wearing of sackcloth or sackcloth sackcloth and fasting were often used as signs to show desperation to people, that they were in great need of something, that they had no power on their own, that they needed someone else to intervene on their behalf. And this is even shown by the king of Nineveh, who took off his royal garments and dressed in the sackcloth that he sat in ashes, which is a sign of mourning. But why was this entire city fasting and wearing sackcloth? We'll look at verses 7 through 9. And after dressing in sackcloth and sitting in the ashes, the king Nineveh issues a decree, and he says this, By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Or water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. And who knows? God may return and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. It's in these, ver- it's in these verses that we see the fasting and wearing a sackcloth, sackcloth was done for two reasons. The first is that it signified a mourning of their sin. Remember that the Assyrians were well known for their brutal ways of warfare. They were incredibly, incredibly violent and went to great lengths to destroy the enemy both during and after the attack. And as their sin became more and more evident to themselves, their public display of mourning increased, hence the sackcloth and sitting in ashes. It was so prevalent that even the farm animals were required to mourn with people, that it went through all their society. It went throughout the city. And this shows how true repentance must start with the mourning of sin. Our sin, no matter how great or how small, can never stand in comparison to a holy and righteous God that speaks against it. Whether it be as horrendous as that of the Ninevites who were skulls on the necks to show the, the vastness of their conquests or something as small as a small word of gossip, sin is still vile when we're in the face of God. Yeah. And our sin means that we reject God and go against the ways that he has created and against the ways that he has designed this world and replace it with our own ways so that we can fuel our own greed and our own lusts and our own desires. In many ways, it's as if we're pursuing what we want rather than pursuing the things that God wants. That we're forsaking the one who has loved us even from before the beginning of time. And as we sin, as we rebel God, we essentially slap him in the face, saying he doesn't deserve any of our affection. He doesn't deserve any of our obedience. Family, this is the severity of sin. And this is why it must be grieved. Because we're sinning against a holy and perfect and righteous God. Because we make ourselves out to be better than he does. The second thing that the king's decree shows us is that Nineveh was desperate for God to intervene. This is why the king declared for all of Nineveh to earnestly call out to God and to turn away from their evil ways and their wrongdoing, literally their physical violence. 
And even though Jonah didn't communicate anything about the God of Israel, God used Jonah's words so that he could reveal himself in the hearts and minds of the Ninevites. He did this so that he could show them who he was, that God was so sovereign over the the preaching of his word, in a sense, that he used that to work in the hearts and minds of the people. That's not about our words that are used to communicate who God is. It's about what God does instead. That doesn't mean we aren't faithful to what God's word says or we aren't faithful to proclaim it, but it means that ultimately God is the one who is in control over all the words of bringing about people to himself. And we see that the king, who is the leader of the people of Nineveh, must have known something about this God as God was revealing himself to him because he makes a statement that shows a small glimmer of hope. He declares in verse 9 that, Who knows, your God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. The king who was in a place of utter desperation has come to a point where he concluded that calling out to God and turning to him was the only option that the people of Nineveh had. That they had to let go of their evil ways. In a sense, what he was saying was, I don't know much about this God, but I'm going to believe him. I don't... I'm going to trust that he is reliable and faithful to relent from his burning anger and spare us of our lives. Nineveh, now at a place where God's judgment was coming and destruction was inevitable, he has been pressed into the most extreme set of circumstances. And it's in this position that Nineveh finds himself desperate for God. Despite the little information that they had, they knew that their only option was to give up all that they knew, all the violence that they did, all the conquests that they've made in order to turn to God. And they did it because he could possibly relent from his judgment. They didn't know, but they said, let's trust that over what we know right now. And then in verse 10, the author tells us that this dramatic turning away from evil was effective. The text says that God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had, threatened with, he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Family, note that here in these verses, Nineveh lived out the process of genuine repentance. It began with the mourning or the grieving of sin. It was then confessed to God as they called out to him in desperation. And finally, their turning away from sin showed up in their lives, so they actually lived it out. We can't just go out and say that we've repented when our lives don't really reflect that. We must actually turn away from our sin as we rely on the power and strength of God's Spirit who works in us and through us to those who have been regenerated by Him. That's what true repentance looks like. This turning away, genuine turning away from sin. And a lot of that we'll be partaking in communion in two weeks. So on March 5th is when we have communion every first Sunday of the month. Communion is one of the ways that God signifies and seals us with his grace. And it's also a reminder of what Christ has done on our behalf through the shedding of his blood and through the brokenness of his body. I want to encourage you that over the next two weeks as we lead into communion to truly examine yourselves and to see is there any grievous way in you? Or is there anyone that I've sinned against that I need to reconcile with? For Jesus himself says to leave our gifts on the altar and to reconcile to our brothers or our sisters. So over the next few weeks, truly invite God into your heart so that he will search you and know you, to show you where you need to repent and trust in his mercy and his grace, 
that as you repent to him, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That he is able to work in the ways that we need to reconcile with one another. That we lean into him over our own knowledge. That we become like the Ninevites who are in desperate need of God and say, God, enter into my life because I need you now. I need you to cleanse me of my sin. I need you to work in these relationships that are so hard so that true reconciliation can happen. We do that over the next few weeks. Now, after reading verse 10, it would be easy to say that the actions of Nineveh or the Ninevites are the things that caused God to change his mind or to relent, to stop this destruction that was coming. You could also say it as Nineveh was influencing God. But if we uphold to this and say this, we're stepping in some very dangerous theological waters. If we say that the actions of humans cause God to change his mind, we'd be essentially saying that man has greater power and influence over God. And when, by doing so, we'd be, be diminishing the very nature of God himself. Instead of saying that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, we would instead give those titles to human beings. We'd give those titles to ourselves. Additionally, if we say that God has changed his mind, we'd be going against scripture itself. For James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says in his epistle that God, the father of lights, is not changed like sifting shadows or shifting shadows. So how is it that we understand this last verse of Jonah? Well, I propose that instead of showing how God changes his mind and allows people to influence him, this verse actually shows us how God is a God of covenants. And how he's holding on to the promises that he has made with his people from the very beginning. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 this becomes even more evident. As Moses was speaking to the people of Israel, he reminds them that they are to listen to the statutes and to the ordinances that, he, that he's teaching them from God. He says that if they follow these ordinances and statutes, they'll live and enter into and take possession of the promised land that God was going to give them. In other words, their obedience to God would bring about a blessing. Moses then goes on to tell the Israelites that if they fail to follow these commands, that if they worship something else or make idols for themselves, that they will be cursed, that they'll be destroyed and scattered. It's God's judgment against rebellion. In other words, this disobedience would bring a curse and judgment. And after telling the Israelites all the, after telling the Israelites all this and saying that they will pursue other gods, Moses says in uh, verse twenty nine through thirty one in chapter four, he says this: "But from there you will search for the Lord your God, and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all of these things have happened to you, in the future you will return to the Lord your God and obey him." He will not leave you, destroy you, or forget the covenant with your ancestors that he swore to them by oath, because the Lord your God is a compassionate God. Moses explains that when Israel turns away from their idols and false gods to seek the Lord, that Yahweh, their personal God, is the one who, who, the one who led them out of the land of slavery, that as they turn back to him and seek him, they will be received by his compassion. And as they return to this compassionate God, he will not abandon them, nor he will, will he destroy them in his righteous judgment. He won't forget the covenant that he established with the, their ancestors being Noah and Abraham. 
That God's covenant with Noah was was that he will never again allow this great flood to destroy the whole earth or to allow the living creatures to die. He then tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply, that he will then establish his covenant with all of Noah's descendants. This begins that thread of God's covenant with his people. Then later in Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham. God tells Abraham that he will give him an heir from his own family line, and that Abraham will be the father of a multitude of nations. Moreover, God says that he will be a God to Abraham and his descendants, and that all of his descendants are to be circumcised, otherwise they'll be cut off. Again, there's that idea of obedience and disobedience. There's, as people are obedient to God, of following the circumcision, they're blessed. If not, then they're cut off. Then in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, Moses reaffirms to Israel this covenant that God made with them, and he gives them stipulations to follow, or the things that they must do. And as, again, they follow these stipulations, they prosper and flourish. But if they fail to keep God's commandments, it will bring about destruction. But this is just the beginning of God's trajectory of his covenant with his people. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with King David, and he promises that David's house and kingdom will be made sure forever, and that his throne will be established forever. And all these things were a precursor to the new covenant that God was going to establish with his people. In Jeremiah, God tells the prophet that this, his new covenant will ensure that God will be Israel's God and Israel will be God's people. That God himself will forgive them of their iniquity and remember their sins no more. And then in Matthew's gospel, Jesus brings his covenant to its final form. In chapter 26, Jesus, as he was dining with his disciples, took a piece of bread. He gave thanks to it and broke it, and he said, take and eat. This is my body. He then took a cup of wine. He gave thanks for it and said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Both of these things are foreshadowing how Jesus' body must be broken and his blood must be poured out as he hung on a cross at Golgotha. Jesus, who came from the line of David, who will establish David's throne, was not like the prophet Jonah, who spent so much time running away from God and disobeying him. Instead, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, knew what lay before him at the cross. And even though he wanted the cup to pass from me, he said, Father, not my will be done but yours. That his obedience was perfect. And because Jesus' perfect obedience was there, it meant that the one who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. And even though our sins put Jesus in the grave, he defeated sin and death and forever as he rose victorious and now sits enthroned in God's right hand forever. Again, following that line of God's covenant to David where he says, my throne will be established forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant where he reigns forever. Family, God created from the very beginning this perfect plan of salvation and redemption. And this shows how he had the greatest act of mercy to display to this whole world. His mercy gave the Ninevites who repented, who turned to him, it gave them life. And the same is true for us. God draws men and women from all over the earth, as we sang this morning, from every nation, tribe, and tongue, so that they can be in his presence, so that he will be their God and they will be his people. No one is too far from God's saving grace.
But to circle back around to verse 10, God never changed his mind as the Ninevites turned away from their evil. Instead, he demonstrated his unchangeableness to them to show them this great act of mercy. And just as Nineveh was shown mercy through their act of turning towards God and truly repenting from their sins, the same is true for us. But unlike Nineveh, who didn't know for certain if God would relent or not at their turning, we know that that is not true of us because Jesus bore the fullness of our sin. That we can have confidence that no matter what happens, God, because he put his fullness of his wrath and judgment on Jesus, that is no longer there for us. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And family, those are words we can live by. Those are words we can cling to. Because God cannot lie. Because he cannot lie, his words will surely be true. His words are true. So family, can you turn towards Jesus today? Look at the fullness of his wonderful face, knowing that he has shown you such a great act of mercy. If you have, then keep doing so. But if you haven't, I want to encourage you to truly prayerfully consider what it means to turn to this Jesus, to walk away from your sin, and to step into the vastness of his mercy. For they are indeed new every morning. And as you do so, regardless if you've done it for the first time or for the hundredth time, as you continue to turn to Jesus and look at the fullness of his wonderful face, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Will you pray with me? Father God, we do thank you for your rich mercy. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us alone, but you have sent Jesus, your son, to die on our behalf so that we can be grafted into your greater kingdom, to be grafted into your family, of covenant love and faithfulness. Lord, forgive us for the ways where we aren't faithful to your covenant, where we are disobedient. Lord, will you, in the kindness through your Holy Spirit, draw us into repentance so that we can truly turn away from those things, to see the fullness of you, to receive your mercy and your grace, to receive your forgiveness, and to know that your love is unending, that your mercies again are new every morning that we can continue to come into your presence where we will one day be in your presence forever. Lord, continue to stir in our hearts this morning. Show yourself to us. Show our sin to us so that we can turn away from it. And may our love for you grow more and more each and every moment this morning and each and every moment this week. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.